rise if you are able. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. This is a second gospel of grace. Thanks be to God. Well, it's that time of year. School's gotten started. We started this last Sunday with the blessing of the backpacks. Our school-aged children have been off and running to school. Baylor starts tomorrow. And I will be treated to 200 freshmen in a lecture hall who will be nervously and joyously anticipating the dawn of their college experience. I can't wait till they settle down. I'll tell you when they do. I've never escaped the routine of school. I've lived at this intersection of the church and the academy, and I've been able to look at the impact of learning and education both in my students, but also in our, our communities of faith. This text from Luke that we read today, as Charlene reminded me, is often associated in the calendar year, the church year, of Christmastide. We like to read it after we've gone through all of the narratives of Jesus' birth, and this is kind of the bridge before Jesus accepts his ministry and becomes an adult. Well, I like to think of this story of Jesus in the temple as Jesus goes to college. Okay? So I think it's very appropriate right now because Jesus went to college. His family had the habit of going to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. But this story that Luke leaves us with is this one time that things didn't go according to plan. Jesus got so caught up in learning and listening to the rabbis in Jerusalem that he forgot to join the caravan on its way home. His parents thought, oh, he's with someone else in the caravan. We're not going to worry about him. Then they realized, no, he's not with us, which they were totally puzzled over because this is their young, obedient child who does what they say. How could he have just been left behind in Jerusalem? But what I like to remind us in this text is this part. Jesus was in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Jesus the learner, not just always the wise one, but he listened to others as well. Sometimes I think that we assume Jesus came pre-programmed to be the savior of the world, but this text really corrects that. Jesus was also learning as he grew. He was learning from those around him. He was constructing his knowledge. He was constructing how others approached the word of God. He was learning. And this is our example that Jesus places before us. Listen, learn, construct faith. 
things don't always go so easily for everyone. I remember two bright young men, twins, who came to Southern Seminary kind of in the years before everything shattered and fell apart. Some of you might remember that in your Baptist history. They were in Jim's Old Testament classes, and they just brought a fresh approach. They were always asking questions. The other students noticed them. I'd hear about them. Hey, do you know who the twins are? Wow, they're so cool. And thought, these are unusual young men. Well, they came over to our house for a dessert meal. We did that habitually with, with Jim's students and with mine, too. And they, as they were getting ready to leave, you know how somebody lingers? You can watch them. They're at the front door, but they won't go through the door. Everybody else is going through the door, and they're kind of like, y'all go. It's okay. Y'all go. And, 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 but they literally wanted to be the last ones to leave. And we found out why quite quickly. They thanked Jim for being so open and patient with all of their questions. And they said, kind of now on a note of confession, it means even more to us because when we were in high school, we were asked to quit coming to Sunday school because the questions we were asking made our teachers so uncomfortable. Ouch. Ouch. Your questions make me uncomfortable. Don't ask them. Just accept what's always been taught. Don't push. Just accept. Now, I know enough Lakeshore stories to know some of you all were also asked not to keep coming back to Sunday school. Um, you can tell those stories later. But you know who you are. And, and, and so we're just kind of in this quandary sometimes of here we're told to construct faith and believe and act. But sometimes it gets us into trouble, right? Sometimes I think maybe our church could be described as the church that asks the uncomfortable questions. There was a letter in the editor, to, the, to the editor in the Tribune Herald last week, and I noted it because it kind of fits into what I'm trying to do in, in this message today. This is what uh, the man said. I was raised in a good old-fashioned missionary Baptist church. Now, many decades along in my life, I consider myself more of a moderate Christian, if you can accept that, and many Christians won't. The only reason I'm not a regular practitioner is because I sometimes feel hypocritical about my own personal beliefs and what I've been told over the decades. What is it that makes certain questions or ideas threatening? The church is supposed to provide answers for tough questions, right? And it tries. It does try. But sometimes even the answers we're given cry out for reevaluation. We learn from other faith communities. Maybe they're talking about these questions in a different way. And our ears perk up and we say, hey, that feels more like what, what I'm learning, what I'm being led to. When we talk about faith and we break into this area of uncomfortableness, we're starting a process no longer constructing faith as much, but maybe deconstructing it in some ways. Notice I am not saying destruction. That's not the point. But the stress of our questions start to press on our faith. 
the insufficiency of some of the answers leaves us wanting more and unsatisfied. And, you know, we wish we were Jesus going to, you know, Jerusalem U. Or if we'd, we could be sitting there and having the benefit of all these very wise and learned people. As we start to work on this process where we're kind of deconstructing in part, we discover what we can hold onto and what we can't. It's more acquiring, maybe sometimes a little divesting, but it's not destruction, more like a process of disassembly and reassembly. The things that will hold, the things that don't quite hold, Yesterday, this very subject of faith and doubt was on the TED Radio Hour. Did anybody happen to listen to it? Good. You can tell me how it ended. I only got to hear the beginning, okay? Seriously. So that's what I'm going to recount to you right now. But I didn't get to hear the whole thing. It's probably playing again today. But there was a man um, profiled at the very beginning of the hour. His name is, was Greg. And he started to talk about how when he was in college, he started to find meaning and purpose in his life in following Jesus Christ. So he was so interested in the intellectual pursuit of understanding his faith that he went to seminary. And then he got involved in ministry and even went on to start a church. In one of his ministry service places, he met a young woman. He was working with the college class. He met a young woman. She became his wife. They married, had three kids, and continued on being committed in their faith to the building up of the church. Then the day came when two policemen showed up at his door and said, your wife's been killed in a car accident. That started a crisis of faith for Greg. His world just got turned upside down. And suddenly, the way he approached faith had to be reviewed again, thought through again. Like I said, I don't know how it ended. You don't either. But maybe you'll want to go listen to the, the, way it, the, the way it's recounted on the TED Radio Hour. Now, I don't know what kinds of deconstructing experiences you've had, but I've heard some of them, even in this very pulpit, when you've told some of your stories. In fact, that's what impressed me when we joined Lakeshore about 12 years ago. I heard your stories, where you'd come from, your questions. And some of you had experienced things that when you didn't fit the community around you, you found yourself on a journey. Still questing, still asking, still trying to follow Jesus. But you had to do it with a new community. Now you have your reflections on deconstructing faith, and I have mine. Mine are more reflective of inst institutional realities, institutional support or lack of support for women in ministry. See, when I got started out, it was 1981, and I went to seminary, and they didn't know what to do with us women. You know, we're showing up in droves and record numbers, and we're saying, we feel called to ministry, and they're going, whoa, what do you know? Didn't know all that teaching in high school youth groups would lead to this. It did. <laughs> I was in a good place, though, and our professors were, for the most part, supportive. We didn't have very many female professors, though. Luckily, by the time I left in 1984, that tide had turned, and Molly Marshall was teaching theology, and it was a new day. So I had hope that maybe some things could change. 
The other thing is I saw churches changing. There was a church in Irvington, Kentucky that called us to work with the children and youth. Hey, Megan. <laughs> we know how important that work is. And so I, I thought, you know, maybe this stuff will start to grow. Maybe, maybe more people will be listening to the Spirit and they'll realize when a woman tells her story, she was called the same as if a guy's telling the story, right? It's the same stuff. But what happened along the way is things in the Southern Baptist Convention changed. It became a lot more fundamentalist. And in the 90s, when I was back at Southern again, it was clear they no longer wanted to support women in ministry. So what was happening then? New alliances were formed. The Alliance of Baptists was the first one. We are a part of the Alliance of Baptists. The second one was the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Our church is part of that too. And I mentioned this deliberately because as we meet together today, and we're talking about where we are going as a congregation, we need to know who we are already allied with and what that means. This is part of our history, but it's brought us to a place where we ordain women. We have a woman pastor. We've had more than one woman pastor. Hello, we have Charlene. She's been with us how many years? A lot. <laughs> we will not number them. But, but Charlene has done so much to mentor women in ministry through the years that she was rightly recognized for that work uh, recently. Now, when I was get, whenever I get ready to do a sermon, I always pull up my college Bible, the one that's falling apart. Didn't bring it to you today because I'm just convinced it's going to fall apart in my hands one day. But I'm always looking at the things that I underlined when I was an undergraduate. And here's one of them. Peter says in Acts 5.29, we must, we must obey God rather than man. We must obey God rather than man. That spoke to me. It still speaks to me. Even when some things for me got a little deconstructed along the way with the way I saw the church and the way I saw my denominational background, new things were happening. New things were on the horizon. We just had to see it, as Brett reminded us of last. And so we got to start this path anew. And that's where we are today. So reconstructing faith is also a part of this message. Even when things are coming down around us, as in the case of Greg, with the loss of his wife, something else can be happening too. And that was the second gospel text I read in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus got away. He asked his disciples to wait for him while he went away to pray. But it says very clearly that he was grieved. And, and he was pondering his fate. He knew. But the human Jesus didn't want to leave this life. And he implored God to please let this cup pass. Even when Jesus went back to his disciples to implore them to continue to stick with him. And went back to pray. And that happened a third time. He and God are clearly kind of, you know, scrambling a little here. But I kind of think that this text is saying something to us about when things are fragmenting and shattering, they're also rebuilding at the same time. Even if it's in the same, it still can be happening at the same time. In the case of this text, it's Jesus saying, not what I want, but what you want. But he didn't get there on the first round. He had to go through a lot of imploring and grieving and asking and maybe crying. But somewhere he got into this peace, grabbing onto faith that's now 
reconstructing from the brokenness. Now you and I know that when we're standing in the face of a big challenge that threatens to rip us apart, it's really hard to say to God, not what I want, but what you want for me. It can't be any harder than that. And it's during these times that we hold on to what faith we can muster. Maybe it isn't very much. During such a time in my life, I had a mantra, and I'd say to myself, believing in faith. That was as close as I could get. But it held me there until I could embrace my faith in a new way. In a reconstructed faith, we keep our eyes and ears open. We don't deny our doubts. We don't deny the fact that we might feel fractured along the way and even a little bit deconstructed, but not destroyed, just a little deconstructed. We hope for a glimmer of light. We rejoice when that light comes. Our soul breathes deep when we find that connection to God again. Lakeshore, we are a motley group of pilgrims. Becky got that word in first, and we did not consult. Did you notice she said that in the welcome? I'm going, she took my word. Becky, why'd you take my word? I don't know what's going on there. But it's pretty amazing, isn't it? So if we need a new t-shirt idea, we'll say, Lakeshore Baptist Church, home for motley pilgrims. And that would describe us. Every Sunday we come together and we engage in constructing, deconstructing, and reconstructing faith. The great thing about being a multi-generational church is we see our children start to take on faith. And we want the best in our teaching for them. They remind us of where we were. That's why I asked Jim to sing the song that he sang today. Because in a way, what we're trying to achieve is something that you find in the work of James Fowler in the stages of faith, where he talks about eventually we can find a second naivete about our faith. That once we've dealt with all of the good stuff and the bad stuff and the, the dichotomies of all those things and the things that we really can't resolve sometimes, we find ourselves in a different place in our faith. We have experienced the parts that had to be chipped away. We're still dealing with the contradictions of life. Injustice still prevails. Those who have nothing have even less. Sickness interrupts our lives. We lose loved ones. But somehow that light's still there. Somehow, some way, and that's faith. Maybe all we can muster is to believe in faith on our darker days. Maybe we're about to follow the light in a new way. Novelist Morris West says it this way, the act of faith is not a leap from darkness into light. It's the affirmation that light exists beyond the darkness. Many of you are familiar with the music of Carrie Newcomer, and you may have seen in our newsletter that Carrie will be performing a concert here at Lakeshore in October. She has, uh, she's, been, uh, she's been with us before. She's been at Baylor in the past. And there's a song I heard her first sing here at Baylor, not on one of her albums, not in concert, but at Baylor with our ministry guidance students in a workshop that we did some years ago. This song is called A Small Flashlight. I just want to read just, just 
one stanza of this. The way is dark up ahead of me. The way is dark and I cannot see. What I love the most is a flashlight beam lighting up the way when I cannot see. Lakeshore, we continue to seek the light as a congregation. Today we'll have a time of fellowship and lunch and we're gonna be talking about what that means for us right now. We're gonna to continue to talk about that and we've gotta share with one another. How did we join this motley group of pilgrims? How did we get here? Where have been the important juncture points of our faith? Where we wondered if we could keep going and then we found something and it kept us going. Those are the stories we can tell. As a multi-generational church, we have a mission to nurture faith in our young people. And then we get the chance to celebrate that faith when it's realized and, and grown. I don't know how to end. I think I had an ending and then I forgot it. But all that to say, I knew when I put this together, some people might say, what is she talking about deconstructing faith? And I hope, hope you'll ask me questions about that. I hope you'll, ask, you'll share with me where you are and putting those pieces back together. It doesn't happen overnight, folks. It just doesn't. But it, it does happen. It can happen. And we can encourage one another in that. God bless Lakeshore. Be a part of the conversation as we move forward. Share your stories. Share your stories.